you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, as you're turning there, the uh, late pastor Adrian Rogers tells a story uh, of the man who had cut off the tail of a man-eating lion with nothing but his pocket knife. When he was asked why he hadn't cut off the lion's head, he said, well, someone had already done that. Sometimes uh, a person's faith can appear much greater than it actually is. Uh, Sometimes faith can seem quite bold until it's confronted with personal cost, when it's confronted with the call for risk. And sometimes faith simply falters and we experience a fall, a failing And this is part of what we've seen in the life of the Apostle Peter through the Gospel of Matthew. Peter is this character who kind of vacillates and moves between courage and cowardice. A flourishing, fruit-bearing faith and a failing, faltering faith. It's part of why Peter is so helpful for us as a window into discipleship because Part of being a disciple is learning to navigate and grow and be sanctified between a flourishing faith and one that falters, one that experiences failings. And here at the end of Matthew chapter 26, we have Peter's triple denial of Jesus. This is a failing of faith. All four Gospels uh, speak into this story and give an account of this story, which adds to its significance and importance. It comes in verses 69 to 75 of Matthew's Gospel. But to understand these verses and this narrative, we need to step back just momentarily to look at verses 30 to 35 to remember what has unfolded. After Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, the night before he will be crucified, he shared the meal with with his disciples. We're told they went out to the Mount of Olives, and as they were going out, Jesus declared to them in verse 31, you'll all fall away on account of me this very night. And while the disciples argued and they contended with the Lord, were specifically given Peter's response in verse 33. And he says, though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And then Jesus reiterates gently but clearly and specifically to Peter, truly I say to you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then Peter says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And now we come to verse 69. Later that same night, Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, taken to Caiaphas, the high priest, and he is in the midst of his trial. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 69. Listen now to God's word. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know What you mean. When he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath I do not know the man. 
After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. One of the first times I uh, realized the significant symbolism of, of the rooster was when arriving on campus at Reformed Theological Seminary for the first time to attend seminary. Shelley and I had driven across the whole country from Seattle to Orlando to attend seminary, and I remember having not been there, pulling into the campus and seeing the main buildings and adjacent classroom buildings, and then next to the classrooms was the chapel, and on the top of the chapel was this metal rooster. And I remember at the time thinking to myself that perhaps a, a different symbol would have been, you know, better. Uh, a biblical symbol, maybe a lion, or we heard earlier about uh, an eagle, so, some animal, some symbol that would represent power or grace and authority, but a rooster. Uh, we have chickens at our house. I, when I think of a rooster or chickens, I don't think of an animal with, with, with power or authority or grace. Why a rooster? Yet it turns out that throughout church history, the rooster has, has been a common symbol and placed on top of chapels and even the greatest of cathedrals as a reminder to people not to deny their faith. As Jesus said to Peter, before the rooster crowed, you will deny me three times. Now I suspect that most of us, if not all of us, are not so tempted to deny our faith as we're sitting here. If you do feel tempted to deny the Lord Jesus and are wavering on the Christian faith, this is a text that should encourage you in its context. But regardless, the question surfaces, how should we understand the meaning of Peter's triple denial? Why is it here? How should we apply it to our lives, those of us who profess faith? Well, let me offer very briefly two ways to uh, caution us in reading this narrative. First, it's easy and perhaps natural to hear of Peter's denials and simply be led into a feeling of guilt, shame, and kind of perpetual despair. This story of denial and of sin and the weakness of faith is not here in any of the Gospels to lead the people of God into a state of despair and kind of constant discouragement. We should beware of being led in that way. Secondly, it's easy to read this passage and think that sin and weakness of faith and temptation is really someone else's problem, not mine. I'll study about Peter, but I'm not concerned at all about myself. Peter's an easy target. His life's an open book for us. But it's not there to take shots at, but to help us consider our own hearts. And so I would encourage us first to step into the shoes of Peter and look through this story through the lens and through the eyes of the Apostle Peter. And when we do that, what we see first is the power of sin, the weakness of flesh apart from God's grace. 
We're told in verse 69 that Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. This is the courtyard of the high priest, Caiaphas. And we're told a servant girl comes up to him and says, You also are with Jesus the Galilean. Now in John's gospel of this account, John chapter 18, John tells us that this servant girl is the portress, a porter, the the doorkeeper to the, the courtyard. She's there keeping watch to keep out any undesirables from coming in. People of question. And when she spots Peter, she seems to recognize him. Notice in verse 69 of our text that the servant girl says, you also are with Jesus. Who else is with Jesus? All the disciples, remember, upon Jesus' arrest, had fled the Lord. But it turns out some followed followed him at a distance. John tells us that another disciple, likely John himself, most believe it's John himself, had already entered the courtyard with Jesus. He had already followed Jesus into the courtyard. Peter is outside the gate. John comes, he speaks to the servant girl, and he brings Peter in. Now, I find this an interesting dynamic taking place here. John, who we are told in John's gospel, if it is John, is known by the high priest. And he's recognized as a disciple, someone in association with this man being tried, Jesus, the Galilean. But when Peter is asked, Peter denies it. There's some kind of fear, nerves, that Peter is experiencing. Dale Bruner, the commentator, says, here you have the lead apostle in the church denying Jesus, not just in front of anyone, but now in front of everybody present. And our text tells us that. And he denies not just on any occasion, but in the hour of Jesus' trial. And he denies not just once, but three times deliberately. Uh, Peter reflects something every disciple experiences at varying levels, an inconsistency of faithfulness. If you've walked with the Lord for very long, you recognize your own heart and go in and out of faithfulness. Faith-keeping, hot and cold, committed then complacent. On the one hand, uh, Peter expresses a commitment. He follows the Lord, remember, at a distance, but into the courtyard. But when he is confronted about his association with Jesus, he shrinks back in denial. And it's a public statement. Notice in verse 70, he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. I think this is insight into the human psyche and character, how we can be bold about our faith and our doctrine and our hope when we are in the company of other disciples, when we're in the safety of fellow believers, when our reputation is safe. But when we're alone, when we're in the world, when we're in public, faith very naturally shrinks back to the size of our own strength our own limitations. I don't know the man. We might say, I would never deny knowing Jesus. But I think these servant girls and bystanders 
They're like the neighbors around us. Our coworkers, the cashier we've seen a hundred times, our teacher or professor, our colleague, do they know our association with Jesus? What does Peter's actions reflect about our own witness? Now, Peter could have responded differently to the doorkeeper. When she said, you also are with Jesus the Galilean, he could have responded by saying, oh, yes, I am with Jesus the Galilean. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about him. There was a time we were in a boat. That boat was about to sink. The waves were crashing in. We thought our lives were going to end. And he simply spoke a word. You should have been there. And the waves went calm. Uh, we were with thousands of people, 5,000 men, probably 10, 12,000 people. All of them were hungry. They were looking to us. And this Jesus simply took some bread and a few fish, broke it, and everyone ate, and they were filled. We were plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath day, and we were opposed. We were accused by the Pharisees. And you should have seen how this Jesus used the scriptures to defend us, to defend us. He teaches with such authority. And he's gentle. He understands people. Uh, Peter could have said something like that. But instead, he denies knowing Jesus altogether. And in each of the denials, in verse 69, 71, and 73, there's no apparent threat to, to Peter's life. As we've said, sure, it took courage to follow the Lord into the courtyard, but it's not as if a Roman soldier or Roman government official was throwing him up against the wall. Peter yet feels fear. And then the emphasis notice of Peter's denials increases he becomes more emphatic in each denial. First, he says in public, I don't know the man. I don't know what you mean. But then the second servant girl said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus. And then Peter denies knowing the Lord. And he adds an oath in verse 72. It says he denied it with an oath. It would be like saying, I swear by God that I do not know him. To those Peter is speaking to, this would not be reverent religious language at all. This would be something you would hear from those not religious. And so Peter's not showing well. And he doesn't even utter Jesus' name. I just don't know the man. He clearly feels fear. And then there's a third denial. Verse 73, after a while the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Peter and all the disciples, with the exception of Judas, were from the northern portion of Galilee. And they had an accent. Their accent was distinct. It's like the southern boy who finds himself here in Connecticut. Their accent sticks out. And what does Peter do? He begins to invoke a curse on himself. Again, he's swearing an oath, and he's saying something like this, May God strike me dead if I am one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And as soon as Peter uttered those final words, that third denial, 
the rooster crowed, and he remembers Jesus' words. And he goes out and he weeps bitterly. Now, it's much easier to read and examine Peter's denial, Peter's weakness, Peter's sin, when it's Peter. But what happens when Peter is your friend? What happens when Peter is your brother? Or your dad? Or a Christian leader? Or Peter is yourself? When someone has let you down, or you have let someone else down, or we've let the Lord down, and there's a feeling of guilt or shame that is overwhelming. J.C. Ryle says, Let us mark this history and store it in our minds. It teaches us plainly that the best of saints are only men, and men encompassed with many infirmities. A man may be converted to God, have faith and hope, love towards Christ, and yet be overtaken in a fault and have awful falls. It shows the necessity of humility. And it points out to us the duty of charity towards erring saints. Remember Peter, he says, and restore others in a spirit of meekness. We certainly see in this story the weakness of man, the power of sin. The story ends with Peter uh, weeping bitterly. Without a doubt, Peter experiences a sense of guilt that he had done something wrong. But it's very likely Peter was also also experiencing shame. Not only that he had done something wrong, but something's wrong with him. And friends, God uses guilt. God uses shame in our lives. But he does not want us to live there. He does not want us to dwell there. That is not our dwelling place. Remember David's words in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. He knew what it was to fall. For I know my sin. My transgression transgression is ever before me. But I acknowledged my sin to you and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Uh, We are to see these denials through the lens of Peter. Perhaps that's our natural inclination in reading this. But we're also to see this story through the lens of Jesus Christ. How does Jesus see Peter? What do we learn about our Savior? J.I. Packer said the secret of soul-fattening Bible study. I like that term. Soul-fattening Bible study is to ask not the question, what does this verse say to me? But to ask rather, what does this passage teach me about my God? What does this passage teach us about our Lord and his son, Jesus Christ? First of all, we see the cost to Christ and his suffering caused by Peter. Peter's sin, our sin, wounds the Savior. And what Matthew, in his gospel, only hints at, Luke's account tells us explicitly. Matthew has told us that Jesus predicted Peter's denials. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But Luke's account tells us that in the very act of Peter denying the Lord, Jesus is fully aware. 
In fact, it says this in Luke's gospel. While Peter was still speaking, he's in the midst of denying the Lord that third time. It says Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the Lord's words. What isolation our Lord likely felt in the cause of his pain. Remember what just was happening to Jesus in the verses prior. They were spitting in his face, striking him, slapping him, making fun of him. In that context, Jesus turns and he looks at Peter as Peter denies him. Here's Jesus being absolutely faithful. And yet he looks at Peter. He sees Peter. Peter remembers this word. Our sin does cause pain. And cause the pain of our Savior. He was pierced for our transgressions. And yet that's not the end. That's not the last word. Yes, Peter's fall caused Jesus pain. But the love of Christ runs deeper. His mercy is more constant. Jesus had told Peter that he would fall in denial. And yet he prepared Peter by declaring to him his word. Jesus had plans for Peter. He was not going to let go of Peter. He had started something in Peter's life and it was going to be finished. How practically helpful this is, what Jesus did for Peter. Linking together the crowing of the rooster and the words that Jesus spoke to him. So it says, when the rooster crowed, Peter remembered the words of Jesus. Peter needed to remember. Peter Peter needed to know, just as we need to know, that Jesus isn't just fully aware of our weakness, of our sin and of our failings, but to know the constancy of his love. B.B. Warfield said, Our Savior, as he stood giving account in his trial, working for the saving of the world, had time to turn a meaningful glance to his failing disciple and so save him in the saving of the world because the Lord Jesus was not going to let go of Peter, though Peter had let go of him. Many are the applications from this triple denial and from this story. First of all is the call to humility. That pride comes before a fall. Peter's fall didn't come out of nowhere. It was preceded by his boasting, an arrogant heart that he knew better than the Lord, I will never fall. All may fall. I will never fall. He didn't understand his own heart. Commitment to the Lord. Commitment to his word. Commitment to doctrine. Apart from a humble heart will likely turn into pride in its various forms. And likely then a fall. Peter would learn. Peter would later write in 1 Peter 5, Verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you at the proper time. We need to humble ourselves. 
Secondly, by way of application, life in Christ is a calling to follow him to the cross. This is a kind of metaphor, this story. Peter's following him at a distance. We're following the Lord Jesus to the cross. And it's a call to move beyond our comforts, to bear witness to the gospel of our Lord. How else is the doorkeeper, the servant girls, the bystanders, going to know who Jesus is if Peter wouldn't profess his faith? Those servant girls, they're like our neighbors, our coworkers, our colleagues, our lost friends, family. And then finally, our weakness of faith does not have the last word. Jesus has the last word. And his word reveals a constancy of love that goes deeper than our sin. This is a love that forgives. This is a love that restores. This is a love that establishes our faith. Do you know that love? Do you have that kind of love from someone? So Peter ends his first epistle, 1 Peter, with those kinds of words. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we thank you for the constancy of your love, even in the midst of our own weakness and failings. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of faith and how you hold us even when we, at times, seemingly let go. So we pray that we would know in ever-deepening ways um, that pure, gracious, and deep love that you have for us. We pray as well, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would embolden us, that you would give us courage and strength to bear witness to who you are. That the gospel would go forth for the saving of souls, for the glory of your name. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.